Our sermon this morning is on the ascension of Jesus, Luke chapter 24, verses 50 to 53. Turn there in your Bibles if you have them. If you don't have a Bible, you can use a pew Bible in front of you. You can find Luke 24 on page 832 of our our pew Bible. So turn there. You can follow along. It's a real short text, uh, just four verses. Uh, It's the the last passage in the Gospel of Luke. So we've been working through Luke for a long time now uh, since, the, since November of 2016 is when we started this sermon series. So it's been, it's been a while. Uh, this is our 117th sermon uh, in the Gospel of Luke. And um, along the way, we've covered a number of other books. of the We kind of come in and out of Luke. And so since we began the Gospel of Luke, we've looked at the books of Genesis, Exodus, um, First and Second Samuel, uh, looked at the, all the minor prophets, but specifically we looked at Joel quite a bit. Um, New Testament books of Ephesians, First and Second Timothy, Titus, and and James. So yeah, we, we've we've covered a, a lot since we started in the Gospel of Luke. Um, but yeah, this one has by far been the the biggest and kind of most extensive uh, undertaking. And we're done. This is the last uh, passage in the whole book, which is exciting. You probably you could pr- you probably have it memorized, but we've kind of seen the trajectory of the Gospel of Luke take shape. And so I'll just just rehearse it uh, one one more one more time for us. So Luke one is the events leading up to the birth of Jesus, the prophecy uh, of of the of his birth and things like that. Luke two is Jesus's birth and infancy and childhood. Luke three through four is Jesus's preparation for ministry, his baptism and kind of going into the, the wilderness and things like that. Luke four through nine is Jesus's ministry in and around Galilee in northern. Uh, Israel, kind of where he grew up. He's preaching and teaching. He's calling his disciples. Luke 9 through 19 is Jesus's journey from Galilee to Jerusalem. And so he's continuing his public ministry, but he's just kind of doing it in the context of a of, of a, a, a road trip, essentially. And this is where we see a lot of the parables that are that are most familiar to us from the Gospel of Luke, the, the good Samaritan, the prodigal son, the rich fool, the dishonest uh, manager of the persistent widow, uh, the rich man and Lazarus, the Pharisee and the tax collector, kind of all, all of those are, are in that trip from Galilee in northern Israel to Jerusalem in southern Israel. Luke 19, Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, gets this huge reception, which is promptly kind of soured when he uh, flips all of the, the tables over in the temple courts. Luke 20 to 21 are the events of the Passion Week, kind of between Palm Sunday and Good Friday. That's Luke 20 to 21. He's teaching in the temple courts about the kingdom of God. Luke 22, uh, Jesus is, uh, you know, the the religious leaders begin to plot to kill him. Uh, They they kind of uh, solicit the betrayal of Judas, and, and Jesus has the Last Supper and is betrayed. Luke 23, Jesus' trial and crucifixion and burial. Luke 24, Jesus' resurrection, and then ultimately now his ascension back into heaven. That's the Gospel of Luke, kind of cover to cover to cover. So we're going to consider today the ascension of Jesus back into heaven and, and why it's important and why it matters and what, you know, what, what implications we can derive theologically from the ascension of Jesus back into heaven so that we can you know, have and know why this doctrine and this passage uh, is is integral to our lives as believers. So I'm going to read this final passage from the Gospel of Luke, and then I'm going to pray, and then we'll just take some time considering the ascension together. It says, And he led them out as far as Bethany, 
And lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they were continually in the temple blessing God. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for these few, these, these precious few minutes that we have each week to, to sit uh, under and, and study and look at and read and consider your word. Lord, for many of us uh, on, on, on busier weeks, this might be the only time that we get to stop and look at your word and, and, and meditate on it and be affected by it. And even, even if it's not, even if we're, we're reading the Bible all week long, this is the, the opportunity that we have as a family, as a group, as a covenant community to read your word together, to see you in your word. And so we pray that you would help us to do just that. We pray that you would help us to experience the glory of Christ together as we read your word together. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Okay, verse 50, as he led them out as far as uh, Bethany. So Bethany, we've seen it mentioned before, but it's about two miles uh, outside of Jerusalem. It's on the the other side of the, it's kind of on the slopes of the Mount of of Olives. Um, So it's a little bit further than the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus was was praying. This is the place where Jesus chooses to take his disciples so that they can witness his ascension back into heaven. Kind of a parallel passage of this in Luke 24, you might want to keep your finger on it. Um, this morning is Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Uh, Luke and Acts, written by the same guy named Luke. He's a companion of Paul's, and he, he wrote it kind of as this two-volume work to kind of uh, chronicle and, and kind of uh, as a testimony of uh, Jesus, right, who he is and what he did, and the story of Jesus' followers, most notably Paul and, and, and Peter, among, among others. But um, so the the Luke 24 and Acts 1 are kind of, it's like a Venn diagram, right? Like that, that's like the overlap between the two where we see the ascension of Jesus. And so we can kind of tell a few details about what happened here from also looking at uh, Acts chapter 1. And one thing that Acts chapter 1 says in verse 3 is that this took place 40 days after the resurrection. So uh, presumably the entirety of Luke 24 right up until verse 49 all happened on one day, all happened on Easter Sunday. Each of the kind of uh, the, the, the transitional phrases say things like while they were still speaking or later that day, things like, like that. But uh, that, we don't see anything like that here in verse 50. And so when we look at uh, Acts 1-3, we see that the ascension took place 40 days after the resurrection. And so we can assume that there were 40 days worth of uh, just just regular life and or life with interacting with and experiencing the, the resurrected Christ between verses 49 and, and 50. So it says, he led them out to Bethany, and then lifting up his hands, he, he blessed them. Similar to what we do with the, with the benediction, probably where we get it. Um, but uh, yeah, lifted up his hands and blessed them. Acts chapter 1 gives us a little more insight into um, what, how exactly Jesus blessed his followers and what exactly he said to them dur- during this. They're, they're actually asking him questions at this moment, and they say, um, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? So, so they're still on that. They're still asking that question, still kind of thinking about that. This is post, 
Christ, this is after Jesus' death, after his resurrection, after 40 days worth of spending time with him, and they're still thinking, is this, is now the time? Is this the time when you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Kind of thinking back on, reflecting back on the good old days of uh, David and, and Solomon and, and military and, and political success and all of the security and prosperity that comes with that kind of success. And so their hope, at least, at least part of them, still uh, understood or was expecting Jesus to, to bring them that kind of, bring them that kind of, of, of uh, success, right? That, that kind of, that kind of power, power bought success. Their hope was still, in some sense, that the Messiah was going to make that, that happen. Despite the fact that Jesus, his whole entire life, had basically been resetting their expectations, correcting their faulty views of what the Messiah would do and who he would be. So all throughout his life, he's continually, persistently telling them, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to be installed as, as a king here in this world as you might expect, right? My kingdom is not here. It's not marked by military power. My kingdom is in eternity, right? My job is not to kind of overthrow Rome and, and install Israel back on top of the power structure. My job is to uh, overcome sin and to secure your forgiveness of sin and your salvation. So Jesus has been saying that all throughout his life and ministry, and they're still struggling to believe it, struggling to experience it. To so say, will you, experience, will you is this the time when you will restore the kingdom of Israel? And Jesus responds in Acts 1, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. So, kind of stop worrying about it. Don't, you know, stop obsessing over if this is the moment when the kingdom is going to be restored. And he says, instead, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So the reason why... Jesus says you don't need to worry about the specific times uh, of, of when the kingdom is going to be restored, when God is going to establish his eternal kingdom. The reason why you don't need to worry about that is because you should be busy doing something else. You've got other work that you need to be doing, namely being a witness to all the, the world, a witness of my glory, my death, my resurrection, a witness of how people can be reconciled to God if they turn from their sin and trust in, in me. And so that, so all of that that we see in Acts 1, 1 through 11 is kind of bound up here. When it says, while he blessed them, that's kind of the, the blessing that, that uh, it, it's very likely he was saying. was His blessing to them was saying, relax, take it easy, stop worrying about if now is going to be the time when the kingdom is installed, if now is going to be the moment when you are kind of put into some sort of position of power, stop worrying about that, and instead uh, prepare yourself to go share the gospel with the world, knowing that you will receive power from me through the Holy Spirit to go and do that. That's the blessing that Jesus is giving to his people. It says, while he was blessing them, as he was lifting his hands, as he was blessing them, while all that was happening, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. Physically, bodily. This is the thing that really happened. Jesus literally ascends, leaves the ground, ascends bodily uh, up into the clouds, into uh, heaven. 
The book of Acts says, gives us an additional detail at this point as well. It says, as Jesus is going and he's kind of hidden by the clouds and goes up into heaven, then all of a sudden there were two men or two angels were standing beside them. And they say, why are you standing and looking into heaven? This is Jesus who was taken from you into heaven, and he will come again in the same way as you saw him go to heaven. Which is kind of reminiscent of the angels that, uh, that greeted the women at the empty tomb. Right At the empty tomb, uh, two angels come and they say, why are you looking for the living among the dead? Jesus is not here. He is risen. Remember, he told you that this was going to happen. And here at the ascension, they're saying, why are you looking up into heaven as if you're going to see Jesus? He was taken into heaven and he's going to come back the same way that you saw him go into heaven. Both cases, the resurrection and the ascension, you've got people standing, looking, amazed, exasperated, right? This is incredible. It's unprecedented. I can't even believe what I'm seeing. And then in both cases, you've got two angels that come to them and say, what, why are you surprised? What's the, like, this is Jesus we're talking about. I'm not sure why you are so surprised that something so extraordinary would happen given how extraordinary Jesus himself was. He's ascended. He uh, is carried up into heaven. Uh, Let's see, Mark and John, the other two, two of the other gospels make it very clear, not just, you know, specifically and exactly where Jesus is going. It's not just that he ascended into the clouds and then into heaven, but it says he ascended back to heaven, back into the presence of his father to be seated at the right hand of the father. That's where Jesus is now. That's where he ascended to at this moment. And that's where he still is presently right now, seated at the right hand of his father. Verse 52, and then they worshiped him and they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. So it's this incredible sight that we've seen, this mighty act from God, Jesus taken up into heaven, and now they're elated and they're excited and they're joyful. And they head back to Jerusalem. They're, they're you know, finally, yes, yeah, starting to understand and finally starting to rejoice in accordance with who Jesus is. Verse 53, and they were continually in the temple, blessing God. So now they're back in Jerusalem. They're in the temple. They're blessing God and worshiping God. Our time here with Jesus is is over. He's gone back to heaven. Our time of fulfilling the Great Commission and proclaiming the gospel and investing in the, the early church is just now beginning. The common thread through all of that is that they're filled with joy. They're filled with awe. They're excited. They're filled with with wonder at Jesus, their their sovereign king. And that's how Luke ends his gospel. Jesus is ascended up into heaven. The disciples uh, respond with rejoicing and celebrating and and worshiping him. So the question I want to consider is why... Does any of this matter? Like, why is it? I mean, you know, there's a lot of things about the Bible, a lot of things about the Gospels, a lot of things about the person and work of Jesus that we uh, are in. It's very clear why it matters. But I want to explore the question this morning of why does the ascension of Jesus back into heaven matter? I'd like to submit four four reasons, among others, but four uh, notable reasons that I, that I want to kind of work through this morning about why the ascension of Jesus matters, why it affects us as Christians, why it should affect our lives and how we interact with God and worship God today. Why does the ascension matter? And the first 
is that because of the doctrine of the ascension, we can know that Jesus is the sovereign king. So the, the ascension of Jesus assures us that Jesus is the sovereign king. He's Lord, he's God, he's seated on his throne, he's exalted in power and glory and might. People uh, worship him, angels and heavenly beings worship him. The ascension of Jesus into heaven is, is a, a one of the doctrines that kind of locks all of that into place. It locks in the reality that Jesus is our sovereign king. If you read the Gospels, if you read the Bible in its entirety, but specifically if you read the Gospels, you'll see a lot about Jesus uh, as he is expressed in his humility and his humanity, right? If you read the Gospels, you'll see Jesus is born as a little baby. He spends his first night in a manger. He grows up in a small town. He's poor. He's a blue-collar worker. He's an itinerant preacher. He's dependent on the financial support of others and, and, and of women, right? When you, read the, when you read the Gospels, you see a lot about Jesus in his humility and in his humanity. That's kind of how he is most prominently displayed in them. But that is not the entirety of who Jesus is. Jesus is not merely a humble human being, gentle and lowly, right? That, 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 that is true of who Jesus is, but that's not the entirety of who Jesus is. The Bible does not only present Jesus in his humanity, it also presents him in his divinity. The Bible does not only present Jesus in his humility, it also shows him in a state of exaltation. I'm going to read two passages from the book of Revelation. They're going to help us see and experience and kind of feel in, in a sensory way the divinity and the sovereign authority and, and exaltation and transcendence of Jesus. Revelation chapter 1 reads... Then I turned to see one like a son of man. That's Jesus. And he was clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. And the hairs on his head were white like wool. And his eyes were, was white like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. And his, in his right hand he held seven stars from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was shining like the sun in its full strength. And when I saw him, I fell down as though I was dead. And he laid his hand on me, and he said, Do not fear. I am the first and the last. I am the living one who died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I hold in my hands the keys to death and hell. That's how Revelation chapter 1 views Jesus. It's not humble Jesus, meek and mild. He's strong and sovereign and, and uh, worthy of worship. Revelation 4, same thing. Behold, a throne stood in heaven, one and one was seated on the throne. And he who sat on the throne, he had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of emerald, and around the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on those 24 other thrones were 24 elders, and they were clothed in white garments, golden crowns around their heads. And from the throne came lightning and, and thunder, and there were burning seven torches of fire, 
And there were seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was a sea of glass that looked like crystal. And on the throne, on each side of the throne, there were these living creatures. And they never, ever stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And they cast their thrones down, or they cast their crowns down at the throne. And they said, Worthy are you, you... You are our Lord and God. Worthy are you to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will, all things exist and were created. Right? Jesus was a poor, disenfranchised, marginalized, Galilean, carpenter, peasant. He was that. And Jesus is the sovereign God, Lord, King, creator of the universe. He's not your buddy. He's your king. You don't look him in the eye. You bow before him. You fall on your face before him as though you're, you're dead. If you, if you spend the bulk of your time in the Gospels and you never read the book of Revelation or you never consider and meditate on the doctrine of the ascension of Jesus back into heaven, you might run the risk of being overexposed to the humanity of Jesus and underexposed to the divinity and the glory and the sovereign authority of Jesus. And so the ascension of Jesus is this stubborn, constant reminder that Jesus is your king. Jesus is worthy of your worship. Jesus is bigger than you, higher than you. He is exalted. He is, he's, he's not, he, he is a man, but he's not merely a man. He's not only a man. He is gentle and lowly and approachable, but he's not only that. He's also your king. He stands in authority over you, and you're the only right response to Jesus is to, is to worship him. So one implication for the ascension is that Jesus is our sovereign king. Another one, we'll have to track with this one for a minute. We'll have to kind of do a little bit of biblical theology, but another one is that Jesus is the fulfillment of what God created humanity to be. Jesus is the fulfillment of what God created humanity to be. So, let's think for a second about God and his creation and humanity and kind of how, like, what what God created us for. Genesis 1, God creates the heavens and the earth. The heavens are refused, used, you know, at several places in the Bible to refer to kind of where God dwells and the earth is kind of referred to as where uh, God's people dwell. And yet the original intention when God creates the heavens and the earth is that those are the same place. The, 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 what will ultimately happen in eternity is that those are the same place. The heavens and the earth are the same, same place. God dwells with his people. The heavens and the earth are one place where God and his people dwell together. And in Genesis 1, the intersection of the heavens and the earth is the Garden of Eden. That's where uh, heaven and earth overlap. In Ezekiel 28, it refers back to the Garden of Eden and says that it was on top of a mountain. And so uh, the Garden of Eden is this mountaintop uh, cosmic temple, as it were, where God dwells and people dwell. And in Genesis 2, God tasks humanity with working and keeping the garden. 
So God creates the world. God creates the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden is a cosmic temple where God dwells and where humanity dwells. And God says, your job is to work and keep the garden. Those same two words, work and keep, are what God would later say, use to describe the responsibilities of the priests in the temple. Work it and keep it. And so uh, what's being, what you can kind of see is that the Garden of Eden is the original prototypical temple. The temple that we see later in the Old Testament is a model of the Garden of Eden. And the priests that worked and kept the temple are, like Adam and Eve were the first priests, as it were. They were, they were uh, royal priests that God created, and their job was to work the temple, work the garden, keep the garden. Their job was to uh, ascend, as it were, ascend the mountain to the Garden of Eden, experience the presence of God and the glory of God, and then their job was to uh, descend down into the rest of the world and to kind of, uh, you know, work and keep and bring the glory of God, bring order out of chaos, bring the glory of God to the rest of the rest of the world. Ascend into the presence of God, descend as God's image bearers down into all creation and to kind of bring God's presence into all creation. They're to rule with God, work and keep. They are to represent God. They're, they're, they're to represent God to creation as God's image bearers. And they are to represent creation to God as kind of the, the priest that God has chosen to allow them into his presence. So, so God creates the world. God creates the Garden of Eden. God kind of uh, tasks humanity with being the royal priest, the vice regent that rules on his behalf and works and keeps the garden. Now, of course, they fail, right? We, we, we see as we work through the way, through the, the, the book of Genesis, they fail, they're, they're exiled out of the garden, and humanity is left waiting for the true and better royal priest. The royal priest that Adam and Eve failed to embody, humanity, there's, there's a deficit in humanity waiting for that, for someone to fill that role. Fast forward to Moses after the Exodus. They come to Mount Sinai. Moses ascends the mountain into the presence of God. Moses hears the word of God. He experiences the glory of God. He experiences the presence of God. Then he descends back down to the people, shining with the glory of God, bringing the word of God to the people of God. Moses is a picture of the royal priest that humanity was meant to be, that God intended for humanity to be. Right? Fast forward to the temple. Like I said, the temple uh, is, is kind of a, a, a picture of the garden. It, it, the temple itself is on top of a mountain. You have to ascend up to get up to it. The entrance of the Garden of Eden faced east. We read that in Genesis 3. The entrance of the temple faced east. We read that in Numbers 3 and Ezekiel 47. All the decorations and all the furniture and all of the symbolism and all the imagery in the temple was all reminiscent of the Garden of Eden. There were trees, there were cherubim, there were angels, these kinds of things. The priests were to work and keep the temple, just like Adam were to work, was to work and keep the garden. And so the, the temple itself was a callback to the Garden of Eden, God's original cosmic temple, and the, priests, the priesthood was a callback to Adam and Eve, God's original royal priests, whose job was to ascend and descend, rule and work and keep and represent. On the Day of Atonement, the priests would, would uh, 
you know, symbolically transfer the sins of the people onto an innocent animal, and they would kill that animal, and then they would ascend into the tabernacle, into the temple. They would meet with God in his presence. So a lot of ascension, ascending and descending language all throughout the scripture that all has to do with the, the God's temple and God's royal priest. That's kind of the recurring theme all throughout the Old Testament. I mean, even, even God's people themselves, right? Um, it's, it, we see language all throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament of people going up, ascending the mountain to Jerusalem, to Zion, right? Anytime you see uh, people traveling to Jerusalem, uh, it says that they were going up. I mean, it, but Jeru- Jerusalem was, was the, the southernmost point of Israel, essentially. And whenever anyone would travel to Jerusalem, they were going south. They were going down, right? I'm going, you don't say I'm going up to Florida. I'm going up to North Carolina. I'm going down. Like I'm going south. But they would always say you're going up to Jerusalem, even though they're going south, because they were ascending the mountain, going up. If, uh, Psalm, Psalms one, if, you look, if you flip to Psalm 120, or 130, anything between 120 and 135, I think, they're called the Psalms of Ascent, because they were the Psalms that people would read and sing and rehearse and kind of recite as they were traveling south, but up the mountain. They were ascending the mountain into the presence of God. That's kind of the, the, the theme that's running throughout all of the Old Testament. Well, fast forward to Jesus. Jesus, at his incarnation, he descends, he comes down from heaven, from the presence of God, from the glory of God, kind of like Moses did from Sinai. That's, a, that's an inherently priestly work. Jesus is doing the work of a royal priest when he descends from the presence of God and brings the presence and brings the glory of God to the people of God. And then from there, Jesus spends his life ascending. Matthew 20, he, he goes up to Jerusalem up Mark 10, Mark 15, he's going up to Jerusalem. It says he goes up to Calvary. He's lifted up on the cross. He's raised up from the dead. And now at the ascension, Jesus is lifted up into the clouds, into, into heaven. So Jesus, Jesus is descending down to humanity, and then he is ascending back up into the presence of God, which is a fulfillment of God's original purpose for humanity, which is to... Which is to ascend into the presence of God and then descend into the world and bring the glory of God, bring the the grace of God to the the world. Jesus' ascension is evidence that Jesus himself is the true, ultimate, final, royal priest that we've been waiting for ever since Genesis chapter 1. He's the the king of kings. He's the great high priest. Jesus, in his ascension, we see that Jesus is doing in a final way and complete and perfect way what Adam and Noah and Abraham and Moses and David, what they all tried to do, but did in a way that was not final, not complete, and not perfect. Jesus is fulfilling God's purposes and his original intention for what he wants humanity to be, a a, a royal priest that can rule with him and can kind of mediate his blessings and mediate his presence to the rest of the world as his image bearers. And so Jesus' ascension shows us that he is God's perfect fulfillment of what he wanted humanity to be, what he created humanity to be. So Jesus' ascension shows us that he's the sovereign king, Jesus' ascension shows us that he is the, the true and final and ultimate royal priest, the fulfillment of what God intended humanity to be. Three, 
uh, Jesus' ascension shows us that his earthly ministry is finished. He's done with what he came to do. It's not still happening. It's not still ongoing. There's no ambiguity around whether or not it happened. It's finished. Right? The ascension proves it because if Jesus wasn't finished with his ministry here on earth, if he wasn't finished with what he came here to do, if he did not complete his mission, finish his task, he wouldn't have gone to heaven. He wouldn't have left. Jesus came to this world with specific definite plans and goals. Luke 19 says that the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. That was his purpose. That's why he he came. Humanity, you and me, we had alienated ourselves from God by virtue of our sin. We had uh, incited and invited God's wrath through the wicked things that we uh, have, have done God created us, God loves us, God invited us to live with him. We rejected his rule, we rebelled against him, we sought to be our own God, be our own king, live on our own authority, and that rebellion, that rejection uh, makes God angry. God is so perfect, so righteous, so holy, so utterly dedicated to his own glory, as he should be, that when, when a creature like us trivializes God's glory, when we fail to acknowledge God's glory, we invite God's wrath. God, God is so loving and so committed to the well-being of his people that when a creature like us does violence to another uh, per- person that God created in his image, when a person like us uh, you know, hurts or exploits someone else, it angers God, God's commitment to his glory and God's love of his people make it necessary that God also hate sin and punish sinners. God's punishment for sin is not an arbitrary decision that he makes. It's something that God is required to require by virtue of his own character and his own holiness. And so that, that punishment, that anger, and that wrath has been storing up ever since original sin in the Garden of Eden. Ever since, ever since Genesis chapter 3, God's wrath has been storing up, and it's so big, and it's so broad, and it's so terrible that it would take an eternity to pour out, right? There, there, uh, you know, in one sense, the, the prospect of punishing sin makes God happy because it's the, it's the means by which his glory is vindicated. It's the means by which his, his justice is vindicated. It's the means by which everyone everywhere knows how utterly committed to righteousness and holiness God is. God punishing sinners makes God look holy and righteous and good, and therefore it pleases God in one sense. And yet, in another sense, God punishing sinners makes God deeply, deeply sad because the people that he's punishing are people that he loves and cares about. He knows their names. He wants them to thrive and flourish. He wants them to be in his presence, and punishing them means that he has to cast them out of his presence. 
So God punishing sin in one sense pleases God because it magnifies his glory, but in another sense it makes it grieves God because he loves the people. Imagine, imagine a judge whose spouse or kid committed some heinous crime and, and you know that judge had to preside over the trial of that person and he had to be the one who had to make sure that justice was executed in that moment. And so if he had to, you know, condemn his spouse or child who, who committed this crime to some punishment, in one sense, it would, that it would be good for his reputation, right? Look at this judge who is, willing, who is unwilling to abuse his power and unwilling to trample on the victims of this crime. And, and even though he could and even though he probably wants to uh, do the corrupt thing and let the, the person uh, go free. He, you know, is going to do the right thing. He'll be, he'll be, you know, he'll be in every textbook for every law course for from here on out. This is a, a righteous and just judge who did the right thing. That, that's, God wants that, God cares about his reputation and he wants his reputation to look and feel like that. But that same judge would be deeply sad to watch his spouse or his child taken to prison because of a ruling that he made, because of the gavel that he punched down. So that's God's, that's God's situation. He is infinitely committed to his own glory and cannot do something that would besmirch or would trivialize his own glory, like forgive sin arbitrarily. And he is infinitely in love with his people, despite their sin, and, and would be broken to pieces to punish them. And so that's why, Jesus, right, that's why Jesus came. God knew that he could not forgive sin arbitrarily. That would be unjust. So instead, he sent his son into the world. He says, you go live among them. You be one of them. You live a righteous life, right? You go and be the only person who has ever lived who did not deserve to die, did not deserve God's wrath, every word, thought, and deed, right? All of the wicked things that humanity does, don't do them. All of the righteous things that humanity fails to do, do them, right? You be the only righteous person who has ever lived, the only person who does not deserve to die, and then after you've done all that, you will be slaughtered as a sacrifice. I will crush you with my terrible wrath, anger, hatred, hostility, all of the vengeance that I have toward all of the sin of all of the worst people in humanity, I will crush you with that so that your people can be, so that our people can be spared from it, right? I'll punish you like a sinner so that sinners can be saved. That was Jesus's mission. That was what God sent him here to do, to, to seek and save the lost. But here's the thing. We as human beings who stand condemned by God's wrath, we, we have a vested interest in knowing whether that was accomplished or not. It matters whether, that, whether Jesus completed his mission or not. If you're, if you're drowning in debt and you're trying to pay it off, you have a vested interest in knowing how much money you owe and whether or not that balance has been paid. If Jesus absorbed and satisfied God's wrath, then that means that there is no more wrath left for you. If Jesus, if Jesus only satisfied a portion of God's wrath, if Jesus' mission was left incomplete, then that means that there is still 
wrath intended for us, remaining for us that we deserve. We would have no assurance, no security. We would forever be living on this treadmill of hoping that we can earn God's favor so that he will not punish us. If Christ's earthly work was unfinished, but it's not. It was not left unfinished. It was compl- When Jesus' last words on the cross, he cried out, it is finished. It's complete. It's paid in full. When Jesus was raised from the dead, that was proof that God the Father had accepted his death as payment for your sin. It was as if God, on Easter Sunday morning, it was as if God was, was broadcasting, declaring to the entire world, to the entire universe, the payment that Jesus made for sin on Friday afternoon was sufficient. I have accepted it. And Jesus' ascension back into heaven proves that all the more. Because if he didn't, if he weren't done, he would not have left. If he had more work to do on earth, he would not have gone to heaven. Jesus' ascension proves that his death was sufficient so that we can have confidence and assurance and security to know that our salvation is sure and steady and firm and can never be lost for all of eternity. The ascension of Jesus is good news. It shows us unequivocally that Jesus is the sovereign king. It shows us that Jesus is the true fulfillment of what God created humanity to be. It shows us that Jesus' earthly ministry is finished and complete and done. And it shows us that Jesus' heavenly ministry has begun. So it's absolutely true, right? It, it's true that the finishedness of Christ's earthly ministry is good news. His perfect life is done and over with. His sacrificial death is done. His death was accepted by God. Right? It's good news that Jesus' earthly ministry is finished and that there's nothing left to do. But that doesn't mean that Jesus is not doing anything right now. He, he, it doesn't mean that he's no longer working on our behalf because he is. At his ascension, Jesus took up a new work, a heavenly work, an eternal work. And it's important to remember that Jesus ascended to heaven so that we can uh, be reminded of it and that we can receive the benefits of it. When Jesus ascended to heaven, he began his eternal heavenly ministry of interceding for his people. Interceding to the Father on behalf of his people. Romans chapter 8 reads, If God is for us, who can be against us? Who shall ever bring a charge against God's elect? It's it's God who justifies. Who can condemn them? It's God who justifies. Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, the one who was raised and is now at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. That's where Jesus is right now. Because of the ascension, that is where Jesus is right now, at the right hand of the Father, interceding to him for you, going to God on your behalf, ensuring that God will never be anything to you except good and kind and merciful. Now, Why is that necessary? Why do we need someone to intercede for us to the Father in heaven for all of eternity. 
Because we have an accuser who is going into the presence of God continually. He's, he's just as committed. He's just as diligent. He's just not as effective. Right? We, we have an accuser who is trying to undo the work of our intercessor. Revelation chapter 12 says that there a war arose in heaven. Angels were fighting against Satan. The great dragon was thrown down, who was called the devil, Satan, the deceiver. He was thrown down, and I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ has come because the accuser of the brothers has been thrown down. The one who accuses them day and night before God has been thrown down. What Satan is doing right now is coming into the presence of God day and night and accusing you, pleading with God, asking God to condemn you, to forsake you, to cast you into hell, making his case for why God should withdraw his mercy and his salvation from you. That's what Satan is doing, just like we saw him do with Job in Job chapter 1. He's going into the audience of God, saying to God, Job's not faithful. Job's not righteous. He only appears that way. He only looks that way because you've blessed him. You've given him everything that he wants. Let me kill him. Let me destroy him. Then we'll see how faithful he is. Then we'll see the truth about Job. We'll see that he's wicked. We'll see that he is a scoundrel. That's what Satan did about Job. That's what Satan is doing about you. Going into the presence of God, saying, God, you cannot possibly love that person. You can't possibly be gracious to that person. You know as well as I do, God, everything that they've done. You know what they've said. You know, what, you know how selfish they are. You know how quick they are to harbor resentment and hold a grudge. You know how slow they are to forgive their neighbors and pursue reconciliation. You hear all of the words that they utter in secret. You hear all of the thoughts that occupy their minds. You've seen all of the wicked things that they've done that no one else has even seen. God, you of all people know how wicked they are, how undeserving of your love. In fact, God, if you don't punish those people, then you're the wicked one. You're the unjust one. You're complicit with them. Their, their wickedness is so great that nothing short of eternal punishment is fitting for them. That's what Satan is saying about you to God right now. And what Jesus, right, that's how Satan spends his days and nights, how Jesus spends his days and nights. What Jesus is saying to God about you right now is that, Father, you cannot justly, rightly condemn them because you condemned me. You cannot forsake them because you forsook me. You cannot cast them out of your presence because you cast me out of your presence. All of your punishment, all of your wrath that was meant for me, that was meant for them, was exhausted on me. There is nothing left for them. Satan is arguing that it would be unjust for God to show mercy to you. And Jesus is arguing that it would be unjust for God to, to ever withhold mercy from you. Jesus is before God right now saying, because of what I did on the cross, 
you need never, in fact, you can never withhold salvation from your people, withhold mercy from your people. Apart from Christ's death on the cross, God's character would require him to punish us in hell. But because of Christ's death on the cross, God's character requires that he save us and keep us forever. And what Jesus is doing right now is pleading that case before the Father. He's silencing Satan, interceding for you, pleading your case, and ensuring that God will never, ever let you go. If you trust in Christ, then the ascension of Jesus should give you the confidence and assurance to walk through this life, walk through death's door, walk into the presence of God, knowing that he has you, and that he will keep you, and that he will never, ever let you go. Because Jesus is interceding on your behalf to him. Friends, the, the ascension of Jesus is no small thing. It's not unimportant. It's not an afterthought. It's not a footnote. It is one of the most important doctrines in the entire Bible. Jesus ascended from earth into the clouds, into heaven, to sit at the right hand of the Father. And because of that, he is our sovereign king, worthy of our worship. He is the fulfillment of what God created humanity to be, the ultimate royal priest. His earthly ministry of atoning for sin is finished, it's complete, it's paid in full. And his heavenly ministry of interceding for sinners is now taking place. Jesus is interceding for you perfectly and faithfully, and he will continue to do so for all of eternity. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you ascended into the clouds, into heaven, to sit at the right hand of the Father. Lord, you are our sovereign king, and we bow before you and we worship you. You are the true and ultimate royal priest, the fulfillment of what God called us to be. Lord, we thank you that your saving work on the cross is finished forever, and we can have eternal security. And we thank you that you are in heaven right now interceding for us, ensuring that God will never, ever let us go. We thank you, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.